And that's the worst thing that has ever happened to the United States of America. We changed the word pursuit of happiness somewhere along the lines to the pursuit of comfort. And we live that, right? We travel all over the world and we stay in our five-star hotels with all the comforts of home. And it's like, then why did you leave home? Why did we do this, right? So this, this pursuit of comfort is killing us as a culture. And it's just a part of that moral relativism. Whatever makes me happy means whatever makes me comfortable for me. Hello and welcome back to Beyond the Bulletin, one of the official podcasts of St. Anthony of Padua. <laughs> My name is Nate Hoff and I'm the Development and Communications Coordinator at St. Anthony's and I am joined today yet again by the incorrigible Michael Gormley. I've been called worse. Hello. Welcome back, Mike. It's been uh, it's been a while. It has been. It's been about a good six, seven episodes. I've uh, been sad that people can't hear my voice, which is the least attractive thing about me, which is saying That's a lot. really saying something. Yeah, <laughs> Mike, Mike, uh, Mike set, set me loose on the podcast train uh, yeah. like a month ago, and I've been doing these solo podcasts with uh, different parishioners. One I did by myself, Mike. Uh, that was a journey and a, a long day's journey. That tonight. was fun. The five things I learned about St. Anthony's. That yeah. was, was that last week? That was before? just last week. Yeah. I think, yeah. yeah, that was good. Yeah. Yeah. I so have what, to say my favorite one so far was uh, Deacon Crawl. 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 Crawl was great. Crawl was great. I ran to hear Deacon Crawl. I didn't walk. I always say to him, crawl, walk, run. He doesn't find it funny. But because oh, I didn't even understand it was a yeah, joke. But yeah, no, that's it's good. a pun. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Uh, welcome back, Mike. Where, you were gone all week. Where where have you I been? Was, I was. I left uh, Sunday night to go to Charlotte. I gave a series of keynote lectures to eight bishops in five dioceses. It's called a provincial assembly, and eight bishops and about uh, eighty-seven something like that priests on the topic of Christus Vivit, which is Pope Francis's um, apostolic exhortation on youth ministry. And it was just, the whole thing was on youth ministry in reference to the, the document. I had four keynotes, one on Monday afternoon, two on Tuesday, and then one on Wednesday morning, and that was it. Like, in terms of speaking, I usually do like four talks a day when I get flown out to places. This was easy peasy lemon squeezy. So it was funny because, you know, as a layperson, I'm able to say things that priests aren't and that bishops aren't because, you know, a lot of people feel this way. When you have to say bad news to your boss... How do you go about doing that when your boss is wrong, right? And for them, you know, it's their whole, it's not just their job, it's their whole lives is under the bishop. And so for, it becomes very difficult to express uh, positive criticism up the chain. You know what I mean? But for me, uh, I am 90% ignorant of diocesan politics when it's, even in our own diocese, I don't know any of this stuff. So when I'm up there, I can share my experience of being in the U.S. and Canada and uh, to go through and give these talks and what I'm seeing. And so I was very, very critical in terms of youth ministry of priests and bishops right off the bat. Like in my first talk, about halfway through my first talk, I was like, you can't expect young men to want to become priests when you're never around them. And I was like, bishops, you're doing a horrible disservice to our priests by putting them into three different parishes and running them around. You're playing a short game. You're putting out fires and you're crucifying your priests and you're jeopardizing future vocations, you know? So uh, a lot of, I, <laughs> when the first priest came up to me afterwards, he was like, wow, that was awesome. And I was like, do you think the bishops liked it? And he was like, well, time will tell. It's tough. I mean, it might be valid criticism, mm -hmm. but it, it's always just tough to hear criticism about yeah. you and your your 
office, even if yeah. even if you're sort of doing a good job at that thing. Yeah. yeah if someone was criticizing, I don't know, Flocknote or, or Facebook, I'd be like, <laughs> well, it's good for this stuff. Even if I yeah. don't necessarily agree with it, I'd be like, well, we use it, so it's good. And, yeah. and you know, you just... Yeah, and it. someone like me has to be careful because... When you are critiquing from the outside, you also only have an outsider's perspective. And you can only see a handful of things that you perceive as wrong when you don't know the million other things. I so. would love a bishop uh, on, on this podcast to, to be honest and break down like every single thing that they're, they're dealing with. And like mm. break down a single decision. Well, you have to think about uh, yeah. however many dozens like, of Like moving a priest. Yeah. You know, the thousands of little things that go into moving a priest. Yeah, it, it's incredible. So, what are we going to talk about today? Well, we're switching it up a little bit this week, and in, in past weeks, we've we've made this podcast um, a sort of a tour of St. Anthony's. I, I've met a lot of people, finding out what they do here, a tour of the parish, right? But this week, we wanted to uh, switch that up and, and, and go to something more educational or, or catechetical, a topic that someone shared a video uh, about this topic with some of our staff, and we watched it and, and sort of started debating on it and for me it was a new topic it's the topic of the transcendentals the transcendentals so yep. you might have heard these three things uh truth goodness and beauty are known as the transcendentals i um know some michael knows more so my hope was to bring mike on and um i'll break down an article i found online uh, by the newman society a, a catholic education society um, they, they break it down briefly, but I thought I'd read some quotes from that article and, and Mike can sort of explain and dive deeper into what the heck are, are the transcendentals and, and what does it matter? I guess that's what I'm looking for when I'm hearing the, these like theological or, uh, philosophical ideas. Okay. So how do they matter to me? And I think with these, it's easy to find ways that you can put these into your life and, and yeah. improve your life, improve your relationships, uh, relationship with God, the way you see the world. So Mike. What is a transcendental, and, and what is it meant by that term? Yeah, so a transcendental is something that transcends any individual thing, right? So the idea of the transcendentals, we now modernly say truth, beauty, and goodness. That's not the hard and fast. It's not just these three. But the idea of transcendentals is what overlaps every single thing that exists, right? So it's as broad as you can get, right? So what categories or, or what classifications actually apply to everything? What are the properties of being as such? And this is the stuff you nerd out in uh, you know, your 300-level philosophy classes when you get into metaphysics, the study of being itself, ultimate reality. And you realize that there are properties of being that apply whether you're talking about animal, vegetable, mineral, or God, or angels, you know, whatever, rational animals and non-rational animals. So it becomes a very important concept in the high Middle Ages. And uh, Albertus Magnus, Albert the Great, who was the teacher to St. Thomas Aquinas, he actually outlived Thomas. Thomas died uh, around the age of 50, and Albertus Magnus um, actually had to travel to Paris to defend his student. Uh, it's kind of a crazy So I love the story of St. Thomas Aquinas in the high Middle Ages. But um, the Franciscan school, the Dominican school, all of these were producing really fascinating thought on these things known as the transcendental. So they're properties that can be applied to all beings, right? What are some other transcendentals besides these three? So, well, okay, so the first is being, then one, then uh, goodness, right? That if something exists, something within it is good. And then another very, like the one that St. Thomas Aquinas kind of situates out is unity or oneness um 
that the being is itself an integral single thing, right? You are a one, there's only one Nate Hoffman. There's only one. There could only be one. There could be only one. Isn't that a Highlander? Highlander, that's right. Uh, That was was a weird throwback (laughs) to 90s television. Um, When you step back, you say, okay, what is the most important thing? What's the first thing I need to have in my brain, right? What's the first thing I know as a being that knows? And it's being itself, right? Like I encounter things that exist in the world. And that's important because when you start to talk about this, being as it hits my head, being as it is appropriated to my mind is what we call truth. So what is truth? Well, uh, you know, you have Pontius Pilate saying that to Jesus, truth, what is truth? Right, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I come to give testimony to the truth. Well, what is truth? Well, truth is being as it is apprehended by your mind. And why that matters is because Immanuel Kant and the Enlightenment, which are very anti-Catholic by design, one of the things that they would say is, I don't know things in themselves. I, I can't apprehend their being. I just produce this mental image of that thing, and that's all I know. This is where you get the word, like, construct you ever hear people say oh these mental constructs right right so what happens with the contract is i'm imposing something in my mind onto reality in order to try to make sense of it so the two sort of philosophies that i see this sort of butting up against are relativism and and scientism or or relativism being that what you're saying everything is a construct focused on me like my image of it um and and same with morality and and the world in general it only matters through my lens Scientism being anything that can't be measured is not yeah. can't be true or good or anything. Everything has to have something that can be tested and and sort of seen. And truth, you certainly, well, from a scientific perspective, you can't test these things. Right. But we as Catholics believe that they can be true nonetheless. Like yeah, and you can see this in an analogous way in mathematics. There are axioms. You can't prove an axiom. But from the axiom, you can prove other things. So you assume that these things are true. Now, we call those in philosophy, you call that first principles or first concepts. And that's what transcendentals are. They're these things that are so basic that you can't actually think. You can't actually think without referring to these things, but we can't ultimately explain all of these things, right? And so that's really difficult. This is where you're getting to concepts that are so foundational the human mind has to just assume them, right? You just have to assume them, and you can't prove them, right? So, for instance, when you talk about being, um, and this is very important because we are, as Catholics, we have to fight relativism when it comes to truth. You have the skeptic will say, no one can know the truth, capital T, and therefore you have sayings like, well, that's true for me, that might not be true for you. The moment we do that to truth, is the moment that we make society, community, love, relationships impossible. We do it to be tolerant, right? That's really where I have my truth, you have your truth, you speak your truth, I'll listen, whatever. But if we literally have our own truths, that's like saying, if you look at it from this transcendental perspective, that's like saying we have our own realities because truth is reality adequated to my mind. My mind perceives reality. And this is why... It drives me insane. And you see this in the beauty of scientific inquiry, right? There are people who have their really well-formulated hypotheses that they then have to test with the scientific method. And if they're a humble scientist, 
They will let the data destroy their hypothesis if the data goes in a different direction. But they're not humble and they do not have an allegiance to truth if they see the data coming in and it's being like, hey, buddy, you are totally wrong in what you thought, and they begin to fudge the numbers. And you see this all the time in academic and scientific journals where the abstracts will literally say the opposite of the test data because they know that many people can't, they don't have the time, especially doctors that have to stay up in order to be licensed with medical literature. So they just read abstract after abstract or page one summaries. And you find that it, it's totally propping up an ego. So the very first thing that we have to have in regard to the transcendentals is humility. Right? I have to be able to, in order to see the world as it is, I have to be humble. Now, I can't be relativistic when it comes to truth. As a Catholic, I can't be relativistic when it comes to goodness. And the idea of the transcendental of goodness is that which completes me, perfects me, that which I desire. Right? These are the phrases that we use to kind of describe and define what is goodness, although it kind of escapes definition. But then when it gets applied to morality, right? To seek the good of a thing is that which makes it whole, right? So I desire food, but food ceases to be good for me when it's already done its job, right? The sociability of food, right? The, the health and nutrition of food, and then I just abuse it. That's when a good thing becomes a bad thing, right? And when we're relativistic about morality, that's where we say things like, well, it might be right for you, or it might be good for you, but it's not for me, or vice versa. And it's so funny because whenever people start going down that moral relativistic way, you just say things like, so what you, what you would say to Hitler is, that's not my truth. I would prefer you do something different. But you literally have no branch to sit on if you're going to relativize moral goodness. So if you start down that road, you have to go all the way down. Yeah, and it's not a pretty place. It's right. not. Well, I want to break down each one of these uh, ideas, the truth, goodness, and beauty, yeah. uh, in a more... Um, detailed way. Uh, one thing that is constantly brought up is that they go together. So there's a quote in here, by truth, we are put in touch with reality, which we find is good for us and beautiful to behold. So uh, finding one thing beautiful, you'll find truth and goodness in it. If you find yeah. one thing to be true, you'll find it to be beautiful and good. So it's interesting what you said about uh, being humble and, and sort of the submission to these ideas, because that was one of the things we talked about as a uh, as a staff. Some of us were like, well, so you have to find this thing beautiful if it is beautiful. What if you? It's not your taste. What if uh, those types of yeah. questions? So starting with beauty, maybe a mountain or a, an ocean or a newborn child. No one's going to argue that those aren't beautiful. What about music or? Well, I, art? I would. I, I actually, this is the interesting thing where transcendentals overlap. Is if you have someone who's an evil person, right? They are going to rejoice in the ugly. Right, uh, and I think of this of uh, Marilyn Manson. You remember him, the goth rock, yeah, like weirdo. Well, he had a song called "The Beautiful People," and that was kind of the whole point of the song. Was now for him, it was fake beauty that he saw the beautiful people. It's all relative to the sounds in the steeple or whatever the line was, but um, he he purposely made himself ugly because that's how he wanted to manifest evil and mock it and mock truth and all that stuff. I would argue that for people who are pursuing moral goodness, to be a good person, to be a virtuous person, that perfects your ability or hones your ability to appreciate beauty because you see beauty in moral action. You see beauty in, in scientific um, 
formulas that talk about the truth, right? You can see beauty. Beauty is the splendor of truth. That's what Plato said, and that's where we get the papal document, Veritati yeah. Splendor, right? It was p- the Pope, Pope John Paul talking about goodness, but the truth about the good, and it is beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. So here's a quote um, from this article, again, from the Cardinal Newman Society. Great uh, article. Educating to Truth, Beauty, and Goodness by Daniel Guernsey. But he says that uh, beauty can be understood as a type of inner radiance or shine coming from a thing that is well-ordered to its state of being or true to its nature or form. So something that um, is good at being what it is is yeah. that is that how I, to understand that well so think about this saint thomas aquinas said so if reason if if truth is the adequation right the connection between an object that really exists in my mind right so what we call information the form of that thing is now in my mind right that's what information means so if i have if, if being in my mind is truth then being as apprehended by my senses is beautiful right so typically we talk about hearing and seeing, we talk about the arts, we talk about beauty within the arts, we talk about an intellectual appreciation of art and beauty for beauty's own sake. All of these things, there are very clear things that make something beautiful, like symmetry, balance, right? Um, brilliance, radiance, lightness of being, right? These are things, like when we talk about ballerinas being graceful or a, a, a dancer in step up to the streets wonderful movie Channing Tatum, baby. <laughs> when you see this stuff and you see like a series of movements that transcend something that's just momentarily sexual alluring appealing and they become something beautiful almost anyone can see that witness that and say wow right before beauty we should have the right emotions you can have wrong emotions towards beauty right if you're morally corrupt you're probably not going to have you're going to you're going to want to tear beauty down from it being itself to something gratifying to me. Right. Well, I think the area that comes up in my mind immediately, pornography. Right. It's it is uh maybe an objectively beautiful being which is human. Sex is objectively beautiful. I, I suppose it would fit into these categories here, but then it's being uh it's misaligned. It's 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 improperly balanced and yeah. and so you have this thing that's being totally abused. Something that is should be beautiful, but it's being abuse so how, how does that work i mean yeah so when you uh, have you ever been to rome yeah have you ever been to the sistine chapel yeah oh okay my, so you're oh there gosh. and you're surrounded no by cameras <laughs> oh gosh. no cameras constantly you're there and you're surrounded by the nudes that michelangelo painted even of christ the blessed virgin of all these saints and stuff and uh the one right behind the high altar is uh of the last judgment of christ where a young jesus a beardless jesus is coming um and then all around, you know, on the ceiling, you have the stories of the great covenants of salvation history, Adam and Eve naked, a naked woman painted by Michelangelo. It is not made for arousal. So what Michelangelo has done is he made a nude that was morally good, and that's why it's beautiful, because it upholds the dignity of the human person, the beauty of the human person. The whole person is represented in his Artwork. That's what the artist is capable of doing. Using symbols that combine tons of meaning that change you when you look at them. Now, you go about, I don't know how many miles south of that, where you're in um, Pompeii, famous volcano, killed all those people. Well, there is the Vatican for years, until Italy took over, banned people from visiting a section of Pompeii that was the prostitute's quarter. 
because it was filled with the, the very meaning of the word pornographia, right? Sexual writings, right? And it had all these paintings of prostitutes and their stalls where they did their, their work. And they were highly charged. Now, these are paintings. So for us today with our multimedia whatever, it's not going to strike us as much as it would. But you can look at a nude of Michelangelo and then look at the pornographia, right, of these, of these things in Pompeii. And you can say these are categorically two different things, mm-hmm. right? And the reason why one is beautiful and the other is not, even though they're both nudes, is it lacks moral goodness, right? Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, it, and here's the funny thing. It tears down, you no longer see the person, right? You just see a collection of body parts. And that becomes the inherent nature of the transcendentals is when I witness beauty, it also causes me to pull out of myself and my own worries. The transcendentals encountering them rip you out of yourself and make you transcendent. It's, a, right. it's true. So one of the questions here, is this also good? Is this also true? So something that's beautiful has to have all of those, everything else uh, backing it, or it's missing the mark in yeah. some way. I remember feeling this also in Rome uh, at, and David, the statue of David yeah. is this 20 foot, you know, naked dude, but you walk in and I was moved to tears by the proportion, by the beauty, this, this striking beauty of this yeah. figure because yeah. it, and it's, I felt like that, image with no text or anything said something about david it, it, it was a character study yeah. it was just an image so i mean there's an example where a tasteful nude can um you know bring about a beauty um it's a it's a fascinating idea one more quote is that uh, it can serve as a re-enchantment with the cosmos and all reality and assist in moving to a rich and deep contemplative beholding of the real, which I think we often uh, yeah. often feel maybe looking up at the stars or, um, I don't know, gazing into a lover's eyes. Beauty um, ev- evokes wonder, delight, right? When you're looking at pornography, you're not evoking wonder and delight. You're turning a person into a consumer good, and instead of wonder, it's kind of a vulgar curiosity. Yes. Right? right? And it cheapens that which you look at, and it cheapens the one who's looking, right? So it's not telling the truth of the person. It's not te- showing you the goodness of the marital act, right? So that's why it's incapable of being beautiful. Mm-hmm. But when you have something that is beautiful, like Michelangelo's David or the Sistine uh, Chapel walls, it takes you out of yourself in a good way. It's what the, the word erotic right, is meant to express that. It's this love that pulls you up out of yourself. And so that's when you know, when you listen to music and it's not, not just emotions that are being driven, but like you, your mind apprehends the lyrics. Even if you don't know the language, the symmetry of the melody and everything takes you up out of yourself. That's what good music should do. Good music should drive you to silence mm. because you're like, Whoa. You hear it sometimes in, um, well, there's that acapella group that sings Christmas songs every yeah, year. Yeah, Pentatonix. Pentatonix. They have a yeah. few bridges and things like that that do that. You you feel it in your stomach. Um, uh, the example that gets brought up with things like uh, this are are is classical music. Yeah, Tchaikovsky or, or Beethoven, Mozart. You might listen and think this is boring, no words. But if if you're not really listening in that case, if you're truly listening and feeling this and the music is rightly ordered, then it should, you should feel it somewhere in your heart. It seems like it, there's something about magnanimity. Am 
I saying yeah. that word? And, and then the opposite of that virtue, pusillanimity. It means small-souled. Yeah. And beauty brings you up and outside of yourself. I think yeah. if you've ever had an experience of, you know, true true love or a true beauty, you, you feel somehow outside of yourself or, or, or greater. And inversely with pornography, it's like a smallness uh, of, of soul to that. So Yeah, like um, speaking about our faith in, in a moment of truth, when I first heard the story of salvation history told to me through Scott Hahn, Right where you see, he says he quotes Mark Twain: "History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme." And he goes and shows you how Christ is a new Adam, new Noah, a new Abraham, a new Isaac, a new Moses, a new King David, and all of those things are good in and of themselves, but they point to an either even greater fulfillment in Christ. And then you see how all of these things coalesce in the Eucharist, baptism, the cross, whatever it is. It becomes this act where you see the radiance of truth. And you know it's good. Like, it hits you. Like, the Eucharist of, like, the Garden of Eden, the first sin revolved around food. Isn't that funny? The first time a priest is mentioned in terms of the covenant is when this priest, who's also a king named Melchizedek, offers a sacrifice to Abraham of bread and wine. And you start to see all this. King David is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And you're like, what does that even mean? Well, he's a priest king. He does priestly things. And now you have his ultimate fulfillment in Christ, who on the night before he dies, a.k.a. mounts his throne on the cross, he takes bread and wine, the same thing of Melchizedek, and he undoes, as the new Adam, what the first Adam did. And it all revolved around food. So now Christ himself becomes the food. And he fulfills what happens with the Paschal Lamb in Egypt and all of these things. And it coalesces into a beautiful symphony. The truth is symphonic. Mm -hmm. And when you hear that, you're like, wow. The danger is, the danger is this. And it's what you highlighted with classical music. Because I pretty much hate classical music. I, like, I'm a, you know, give me a four-minute pop song with a cool hook for a refrain. And Olivia I, and Rodrigo, oh my gosh. Never what heard a, of Never heard of them. Okay. But, uh, no, but the, the idea is all of these things we acknowledge, take cultivation. You're not born morally perfect. You have to acquire virtue. You're not born with all knowledge. You have to fight for it and understand, like, if you want to be a chemist, you have to submit yourself to the rules and practices and discipline of chemistry. But when it comes to beauty, what do we say? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, it absolutely is. But that doesn't mean that beauty is any less objective than truth or goodness. What it means is there's also an element of cultivation. And we need to cultivate that. So there's a reason why, like, I didn't know this until about a, a year ago. Someone's telling me about medieval music. If you were to take it and separate a medieval play and just take out the music, like we do with uh, the Hollywood scores, right, yeah. the soundtracks, if you were to listen, like, I love listening to, like, John Williams and the Star Wars songs, or um, one of the favorites in my family is we play, I think it's Hans Zimmer doing Dead Man's Chest soundtrack. What is that? Pirates of the Caribbean. I love the music mm -hmm. of that. And we just push play, and you play. And you know when there's a sad part. You know when there's a peppy part. You know when there's a fun, adventurous part. In medieval music, it was never that way. You couldn't remove the melody from the lyric and the play, the performance, and it makes sense. So you didn't know that this was a sad thing just by pulling it out. If you pulled it out from its context, you didn't. And so it was fascinating to me that they, it's like in the evolution of music, in a certain sense, pop music has devolved our ability to understand music because it requires like it's time for a sad thing. So sad trombone, you know, whatever. Right. 
everything has to say, well, this is sad now, and it can't be all these things together. So you could take, um, you know, a, a, a movie and a soundtrack, and you can say, oh, I remember when I felt that way, because that's what music has become, a way of stirring emotions. But that's not the only thing that music does. So you can listen to Bob Dylan, and you can hear his voice and say, that's a terrible voice. That is not a beautiful voice. But his lyrics and the way he plays that guitar are incredible. And there's so much truth and beauty and goodness in the lyrics that you take that out. Like Leonard Cohen, he's a Jewish, um, Canadian Jewish singer-songwriter. I call him the Canadian uh, Bob Dylan. He has a song called Everybody Knows. It's the best song for a modern interpretation of, of uh, original sin. And this woman named Sigrid sings the same song with the same lyrics. It was on the, uh, the Justice League soundtrack. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. And I like Leonard Cohen's songs. He's the one that wrote Alleluia. Yeah. So his lyrics are incredible. But his voice is annoying. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. But her voice is flawless. And when she sings the same words, it's a whole, to me, it's a whole new category of beauty. It's a whole hmm. new category, right? So all these things, you can't be a relativist about all of them. Although there is definitely a subjective element to all of them. Right. So you don't, you're not, you're not disordered if you don't like Beethoven, basically? See, because it's cultivated. It has to be cultivated. And not just Beethoven. He is, and Mozart, they're the pinnacle of Western music. But then you get in, uh, introduced into Japanese music, right? And Japanese music has its pinnacle, which is similar to our classical music. And what ends up happening is you can tell that this is an elevated form that's different than popular music. Popular music serves a different purpose, right? And it's funny that of all the classical music, we really only listen to about 10 composers. And of their whole volume of work, we only listen to about 20% of it. The same songs, you know, Beethoven's Fifth right. and whatever, the Moonlit Sonata and all that stuff. They've we, been christened somehow, uh, and we don't the, check out the rest. Yeah, yeah, well, because they define the very pinnacle of Western musical tradition. That's right? fascinating. Yeah. So there, I feel like beauty could be a, a, a series of podcasts. Uh, maybe we'll talk about that later. But moving on, um, we've mentioned before that something to be for something to be beautiful has to be good and true as well. What about goodness? Um, goodness is another transcendental. Uh, a quick definition is um, you have to consider how well someone, someone, or something fulfills its purpose. Goodness is understood as the perfection of being. Yeah. So, um, so wow, there's a lot there because then you have to figure out what a per- thing's purpose is before. For a thing, it might be simple. For a, that said, someone. So you gotta have to figure out a person's purpose. Yeah. To so know if they're good. In 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 Catholic morality, we call it teleology which is a big fancy word from the Greek, meaning telos, meaning the end, the point, the goal, the purpose, right? So imagine playing a game of soccer without any goals. How, how do you play? Like if you have no goals, how do you play? But once you have a goal, then the rules lead to the better playing and enjoying of and, and scoring of goals. You have boundaries, you have onsides, offsides, you have all that stuff. And then by playing the game, you refine the rules, hopefully for the better and hopefully for the right reasons, of the goodness of that thing in itself. So there are goods, like when we talk about the goods, that which appeals to me, that which attracts me, that which draws me, but it's also that which completes me, that which perfects me as a creature. And so I can't know, just what you said, 
I can't know if something is good for me unless I know why I'm here, what I'm here for. The why is to purpose. Why, why are you here? Right? If I'm just here as a pure accident, then there is no meta why. There's no meta meaning. Then I create my own meaning. Then my meaning can be to get as much pleasure before I die. My meaning can be to serve the poor in foreign countries. My meaning could be to advance a communist agenda. Like we can invent our own meanings, right? And none of those meanings are any more true than any other if goodness is purely relative. Right. And so you see, again, the transcendentals overlap and reinforce one another. So would you say that all humans have the same meaning and then there's uh, tints or colors to each one? All human beings have the same end. Mm -hmm. Right. And that same end is what we call in philosophy, you would say human flourishing. But we know that the ultimate form of human flourishing is what we call beatitude. Right. The beatific vision of of a human person gazing at God, who is truth and love itself, right? So when you talk about the word, the very word beatific vision means happiness, right? The happy vision, right? So when Jesus gave us the eight beatitudes, he gave us the eight happies. So what is the end of every human person? Uh, St. Augustine said it best. He said, before the words are even out of my mouth, you already agree with me that everyone wants to be happy. When people despair, it's because they don't think they are able to be happy anymore. And I don't just mean subjectively satisfied. I mean objectively happy. That's why the Greeks used to say, you can never know if a man is happy or not until he's dead. Because his whole life had to be good. And if his life was good, then he was happy, right? But the whole, I mean, it's so antithetical to our modern way of instant gratification and now, now, now. Happiness is just, what's pleasurable? What's right now? My comfort. And that's the worst thing that has ever happened to the United States of America. We changed the word pursuit of happiness somewhere along the lines to the pursuit of comfort. And we live that, right? We travel all over the world and we stay in our five-star hotels with all the comfort's of home. It's like, then why did you leave home? Right? Why did you come to Thailand? Well, I want to watch The Simpsons in a hotel in <laughs> in Thailand. Like, what? Why did we do this? Right. So this this pursuit of comfort is killing us as a culture. And it's just a part of that moral relativism. Whatever makes me happy means whatever makes me comfortable for me. Really cast a dark light on uh, modern philosophy and it, uh, maybe shed some light on why there's so much uh, depression in, in the millennial generation and, yeah. and the Gen Z uh, because there's nothing at the center and there's nothing to uh, pursue. So how can you yeah. be good and how can you be When there's no happy? end, there's no purpose. When there's no purpose, people always say, you know, the – the best part of is the journey not the destination that's true unless your destination is the eternal god of the universe because then once you quote unquote arrive right it never ends right it is it is you you grow ever deeper into the mystery of god who is truth beauty and goodness ever deeper that never stops but the point of this side of the veil is to grow towards that Right, So the very word that St. Thomas Aquinas used, beatific vision, to describe what happens to a soul in heaven is what Jesus says is the condition of human life. Blessed are or happy are the poor in spirit, right? they who are mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, uh, the merciful, the pure of heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, right? Yeah, wow. Right, so it completely upends Mm. what we think of normally as that which will make me happy. And you find this human flourishing. If if we don't share the same end, 
then how can we have a community? This is the critique of the modern political arrangement known as liberalism, right, from the Catholic perspective. Because it says, well, 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 when it comes to ultimate things, we don't want to have another war between the Lutherans, the Catholics, the Reformed Church, the Anabaptists. So we're just going to say, like, ultimate questions, you're cut off from having access to the public sphere. Everyone gets to pursue their own things. What we're going to do is make sure you don't kill each other over them. That's what our society has been for 200 years. And now that's breaking apart because it's not enough to – you can't have a thriving human community if we disagree on the ultimate end of things because then you can't have justice. A Marxist definition of justice is different than you know the founding philosopher of America, John Locke, and then his view of justice is different than Thomas Aquinas's view of justice. Right? So how do we live in a shared space if we all believe we have different ends? Right. That's the that's the crazy part about right now. So it's I guess what's interesting to me, we have uh, a shared purpose as as humans, no love and serve God uh, and, and a human who is doing that you would call good. But you and I also are, are pretty different. And uh, us and Jay and, and, yeah. and our respective uh, spouses or fiancés, we're all different in, mm. in minor ways. So not in a relativistic way, but are, right. are there different ways like each personality pursues? Goodness? Well, see, this is the beautiful thing about loving a God who's infinite and eternal is just like a prism uh, breaks apart light into its different wavelengths of color. So, too, is the one end of all humanity and all of our striving manifested in a million different ways. When you're made in the image and likeness of an infinite God, there is an infinite ways, amount of ways that you can imitate God, right, and still have him as your final end. So we avoid relativism because we say that there is a true end that is the good for us, right, and attaining that end is what every human being needs to do. So there are certain things that we all have to have in common. So Nate and Mike Gormley have to not be liars, right? You can't be a liar and in heaven, right? Liars are, that's what hell is for, right? Where people, the very power of speech you use to hurt and destroy. To use untruth is the exact opposite reason why God gave us a voice, right? And so what we need to do is become people who tell the truth. We need to become honest. We need to become people who don't rob and steal from one another. So we need to become just, giving others their due, right? We need to become do. I said that we're do, do, do. <laughs> so we need to become those type of people. So in one sense, you're going to live it out because you're, you're, you're incarnate in this unique place and time and you have your gifts and personalities. So you, you're going to imitate God in your own natish way. And your natish way is also your family, your history, your baggage, um, your sins, the thing. I, I know you don't have any, but yeah, right. But that whole thing, like I don't have a brother who's a priest. So that will it's going to change your family dynamics in a powerful way, right? If you get in a fight with your brother, maybe you're getting in a fight with your brother. Or maybe you're getting in a fight with your brother, the priest. Those are two different things, right? Or they can be. And so the way that we reflect the glory of God becomes very, very real, that, and it's very unique, but also at the same time, there's one moral law that's written on every human heart. You're still not allowed to murder just because Nate has baggage, right? You're not allowed to lie and be a liar, right? Just like playing football. Like, well, Nate is more of a scrappy runner. Gormley's more of a lineman, right? We don't say everyone on the field has to play the exact same role in the exact same way, but we do all adhere to the same rules in order to bring about the perfection of the game. Same with symphonies, right? The truth is symphonic. Every instrument, when playing together in harmony, sounds amazing. But there really is a thing called harmony, right? So here um, we have another responsibility, 
Um, just like with beauty, you have to cultivate uh, your knowledge of what, what is beautiful. Yeah. For goodness, uh, we do have um, something to pursue, which is yeah. the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, there's yeah. an example of, of someone who lived a, a good life. But we have a, a mark to, to strive after, and so it is our responsibility to get to know him, get to know uh, knowledge about him, and that's how we can... Um, pursue the good life uh we don't it's not just a, like a vague i don't know pie in the sky thing where we're all pursuing like what are we perceive to be good yeah so think about this the word in in greek that um john uses in john chapter one to describe jesus in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god the word became flesh and dwelt among us now the cool thing about that is the word word in greek is logos it's where we get ology at the end of all those scientific things philology biology whatever it is that means the rational structure, the ordering, the intelligibility, reason itself. It's a very pregnant word in Greek. Jesus is all of that. He's the order from which the universe came together. And that divine order became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. So yeah, for the very order and pattern of all of nature to become a human being, right? To take on a full human nature and join it to his divine personhood, like, he is the omega point of humanity. Like he's the, he is the end of evolution. There's a a, a French um, poet named uh, I don't know how to say his name in French with all the fanciness, but we Americans would say uh, Teilhard de Chardin. Mm. But he talks about Jesus as the omega point, like the end of which all human nature is striving and evolving towards. Like you can't get beyond the God Man. Right, And it's so fascinating because if humans are the height of evolution because we have logos, reason, logos itself became one of us. So that's the peak pinnacle. So conforming ourselves to Jesus morally, truthfully, and in his beauty, right, conforming ourselves to him, again, because he's God in infinite ways, but because he became a particular being, right, he became particular to us, excuse me, we can, we can actually imitate him. When you read the Gospels, you are reading the life of God in human flesh, right? When you know something, you're in, you you got to humble yourself before it. And so, yeah, exactly what you're saying. So we can't be relativistic when it comes to what, is, what does it mean to be good? What it means to be a good person is to be Jesus Christ in my own life. That's what it means to be good. Within your own set of personalities and, yeah. and strength and skills. Yeah, in your own uniqueness. We have a responsibility to pursue the scriptures, to uh, read church teaching and tradition, and, and to follow other people's good yep. imitations. When we observe someone who's done well, particularly the saints, we have a responsibility to follow that example. Yeah, and I would tell everyone listening, if my best spiritual advice that I can give people, especially people who aren't good at praying and aren't good, they want to love Christ more, but they don't know how, the best advice I have seen and that I've been given and that I give out all the time is Letzio Continua. Just read and reread and reread, continuously read the life of Christ in the four Gospels. Start with Mark if you've never read it before. It's the shortest of the Gospels, and just read through. It's all action, no infancy narrative. Here he is, here's John the Baptist, and now here's Jesus. Just go, go, go. Just go, 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 immediately, right? And the life of Christ, you will encounter truth, beauty, and goodness. Right? So it's funny, we went straight to uh, people with with goodness. We, we, how, do, how do you be a good person? How, do you, mm -hmm. how, do, how does a person become good? Uh, this can also be applied to other things. I mean, it's yep. easy to um, identify if a pair of scissors is good or for a chair is good. Um, 
things like books and movies, I think, is where it gets very interesting. And that might be a whole different uh, type of podcast to dive yeah. into. But how can this particular movie be good? Is it fulfilling its purpose? Well, what if its purpose was to scare or shock or something like that you know right i mean i i think you can and matt frad who is a famous podcaster he has uh he writes horror horror stories with his sister and they publish it as it's called sibling horror it's really funny but he got all this all these people dumped on they're like how dare you deal in the demonic and he's like okay yeah there's a right way and a wrong way to do horror but horror as a genre is not intrinsically evil like, I'm not delighting over pain and suffering, but the uncanny fear, anxiety, like these are things that when you read, why do certain people find it exhilarating to watch a scary movie? You'd actually be surprised at a lot of people who love being scared in a movie in that kind of context. So uh, I would argue that, number one, this is a, like a much deeper topic than my brain can possibly generate, but the thoughts of it are you can have evil – in a movie being pictured uh, while the movie itself leading towards a good end. So what I, I my classic example is the Godfather trilogy. Oh, yeah. So I love Godfather 1 and Godfather 2. They're probably my favorite movies. Godfather 3 I do not like as much. <laughs> Godfather 3 is notoriously weird, and a lot of people don't like it. But my buddy in college said, you can't say you don't like Godfather 3 or else you're immoral. And I said, what, why? And he goes, because that's the redemption arc of Michael Corleone. And I said, what, what are you talking about? He's like, well, you know, he goes to the confession to the guy who becomes Pope John Paul I. You know, it's all this stuff. It's his, and I said, no, no, no. See, here's the deal. When you watch Godfather 1 or 2, there's a external glamour, the men in suits, the power, the, you know, the, the raw power, really, and the money and all this stuff. But their lives are empty. Like, I remember that line from um, Kate, the woman that he loves, and she admits to getting an abortion. And she goes, I did it. It was wrong, and it was evil, and I did it because this whole thing has to stop. And I remember watching that now being like, wow, she just said it was wrong and evil and all this stuff. But you see the emptiness of their life. And what does he do to her? He hits her. Yeah. He responds with violence. Everything is violent, and it's destroying everything around them, but they can't take themselves out. Every time I'm out, they pull me back in. Pull me, pull back, me in. back in. Which actually comes from the third movie. Yeah, so there's sad. no glory. There's not really a glorification there of, of mob life or of the power or of the money. It's it's a more of a teaching or a lesson of, of like, this well, is what it really looks like. Well, that's what you really can draw like. from it. And, mm -hmm. and, and um, Francis Ford Coppola in crafting that movie, because then you have to talk, when you talk about goodness and truth and beauty, you also talk about the craft, the tradition in the craft, right? So like when you say that Michael Jordan was the greatest of all time, and you watch, so I took my kids, especially my son Noah, who's, who's pretty good at basketball, and I just played highlights of Michael Jordan and people talking about Michael Jordan. The whole room got quiet when they watched him do his thing, right? There was a beauty, and that's what the language of people like Charles Barkley, they couldn't stand him because he, there was a beauty in his moves. So he had reached the pinnacle of his craft, right? And when you see a beautiful chair by a woodworker, when you see, you, you know that there's something more to it than, you know, four legs, a flat surface, and a back, and maybe some armrests, right? You know that there is an element of mastery that has gone into this thing. And there's the cool thing about Aristotle. He says, a man is to a good man what a chair is to a good chair. And it's funny that you started off by saying, well, when I know its purpose for a thing, I can say it's good, like a chair or a table. Like, those are things 
that we analogously use the word good for. That's why it's a transcendental. Because what is a good chair? It's a chair that I can sit in that won't immediately break. What's a bad chair? Right? A chair that can't hold my weight. It, it, maybe it's too small for a human butt or some human butts some human like butts. my own. But so we say that. Well, what's a bad person? Right? Within that con- Well, what's a bad movie? Well, the craft of what a movie is supposed to be, and there's different things that a movie can be as an art form. There's different types and genres of painting, right? You can have an, an impressionist painting, and experts who stand within that tradition can look at that and be like, that is stupid. Like, you have no idea. But the people who saw the first Monet, right, they were, they were blown away by what happened. And they knew, some people not, but many true painters would see in what this th- that a new form had emerged mm-hmm. that someone had become such a master in the tradition that they could create something new oh. right caravaggio playing with light and rembrandt playing with shadow and fra angelico merging modern how we look of like we want everything to be realistic and then taking icons which never look realistic right they're flat um, you know, when they say, like, my favorite is icon of St. Thomas Aquinas, and he's holding the whole church in, mm-hmm. like his, in his forearm. He blended those forms where you have an icon and realism and eventually perspective and all that and relative perspective. All that came after him. He was that turn. But it was still an icon. It was still a saint representation. It did something good that was recognizable by masters because they stood in that tradition, even though he took it in a new form. Right? It's, it's funny. I've been thinking about... Um a song by Pusha T, but uh, it, the uh, for these first two, goodness and beauty, you can you can almost say like, if you know, you know, they're undeniable. Yeah. When mm. you see something like this, when you see a good man, or when you see a beautiful sunset, uh, when you know, you know, it's like not to boil everything we just said down to yeah. like it's just it's undeniable. You can see it when you see it, and you know it to be true, which is our next. Uh, mm. uh, and final uh, transcendental we want to talk about here. So. Um, the transcendental of truth, the mind being in accord with reality. Mm-hmm. Wow. So this is this is talking about something that seems to be only apply to humans. We're the only ones who can comprehend this stuff, right? Maybe that's all the transcendentals. Well, humans, angels, God, right? Anything that has the power of reason can apprehend truth, right? Animals don't apprehend goodness. They are driven to it like food, right? Animals, when eat... Because that's, that's a good, that's an end, a perfection for themselves. So when you talk about truth from this perspective, you need to, the ability to understand reality as such. And that's why I think, um, you know, when humans diverge from their ape ancestors in evolutionary biology 13 million years ago, isn't it funny that after that long time, apes still haven't built a city? Mm. Right? Isn't it funny? Like, they can't, apes don't have culture. You can teach an ape sign language, and it cannot teach its children sign language. They don't have culture. And when you don't have culture, you don't have tradition because you can't transmit truth to the next generation. So only humans have culture because only humans are capable of what we call mimetic learning. We learn by imitating other people. And in imitating other people, we learn what is right and good, right? We learn these things. We learn what's useful and successful, right? And that becomes part of our culture. And that that part of culture is tradition, right? When you have truth, you have to have beings that can apprehend reality around them as such, right? Oh, that's interesting. So truth demands that there's there's a reality to be apprehended. There's a mind that can actually connect with the real, right? So a, a, a gorilla interacts with its environment, 
right? But it can't then abstract from that environment, this tree is a, you know, a apple tree that I'm going to climb. There are 37 apple trees within my, you know, area where I roam. You know, they can't do that, right? And their lack of abstraction means that they only have that material thing right in front of them that they can, quote unquote, know. Yeah. So this is another transcendental that needs to be worked on. I mean, we yeah. have to study and reflect and discuss to be better at apprehending truth. Um, it is it is true that man tends by its own nature toward truth. Mm-hmm. Would you say that? We, we desire something that is true. And then whenever you see someone who's purposefully denying truth, it's possible to their own detriment. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say me, you, and Jay are hanging out. That sounds like fun. And we're all equally friends with each other. We're a group of friends. Big stretch, like total lie. But wow. let's just pretend. Well, that was rude. Let's say that I'm hanging out with Jay and I tell him a story that's not true. And I tell you a story that is true. And I tell you, yeah, well, I, I lied to Jay. I, t- I end up lying to Jay, and then Jay finds out. That fundamentally alters our relationship from that point forward. And under it undermines the group dynamic. It undermines my interaction with him because I lied. I used my I deliberately deceived. I told someone something that I knew was not real. And I purposely deceived them for whatever reason, maybe to spare their feelings. Maybe to hurt their feelings, maybe to ruin their lives, maybe just because I didn't want to bother and I was tired and I'm moving on with my life. You know, I want to get home. Listen, Jay, nothing big happened today. And then I tell you something different. Right? What ends up happening when we live out from this place of untruth is it becomes easier and easier to lie. Are you a good liar? I'll never tell. <laughs> yes or no. <laughs> well, so when I was a little kid, I was a good liar. And what I mean by a good liar was you could tell a story that was believable because you could look them in the eye while yeah. you were telling it and lie straight to yeah. their face. You pepper in a few uh, untruths. Yeah. yeah. You pepper in a few untruths, pepper in a few half truths. Yeah. And all of a sudden, no, mom, I told you this the other day. I remember this. I used to tell people that whenever you tell a good lie to get out of trouble, you have to have as much truth in it as possible because that's left for you to have to remember what you made up. That's right. Right. Yeah. Gosh. right? But think about telling a lie is you're fabricating reality, right? You're telling an alt history. Right. And when you do that, it's fundamentally a disconnect between the real and what you say and what you know to be true. Right. So think about the fundamental disruption within your own heart, your your own life. Right. That's why the goal of a virtuous man, the medieval um, medieval theologians called it um, in Latin is the word that we use honesty. But for us, honesty just means like not lying, telling the truth. But for them, it meant like the harmony of a truth filled life. That's what honesty, to be an honest man, right? And so what happens when you, when you live in a culture of lies, right? The same thing happens when you live in a culture of death. The truth becomes so cheapened it's that it's, it's manipulated just for use. What happens when you live in a culture of pornography, right? Then beauty becomes something that's that which arouses so that I, I can make a sale, so that I can be manipulated, whatever. Wow. Yeah, so the truth becomes less... Um, less truthy, less truthy, <laughs> less less good. This is where we get into things like, um, well, this this sort of scientism that is rampant in, in yeah. our culture, where only what is scientific can be true. Yeah. Whereas this this transcendental would say something like, my favorite book, The Lord of the Rings. There there is a true book. I would call that true. Yeah. I mean, it didn't happen, as far as we know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I believe it did. <laughs> Yeah, so the book didn't happen, but the book is true. The the what's depicted in it is all in line with reality in some way, even yeah. though there's fantastical creatures and everything like that. Right. 
the Lord of the Rings tells more truth about human nature than necessarily uh, a biology textbook. So when, when we talk about, when people say, I don't believe in the Bible, I believe in science. Number one, that's just a completely ridiculous line to say. I believe in science. What is science? An ordered pursuit of the truth. That's the most broad definition that you can have of quote-unquote science. What you mean to say is, I believe in natural science, I believe in modern physics, I believe in biological evolution. That's typically what people mean when they say, I believe in science. But what they think when they say that, what, what scientism is, it's a bracketing off of the truth as to only that which is demonstrable to the scientific method, right? And the scientific method, you know, was invented by Christians, so let's not forget that. Modern genetics and biology and all that stuff was invented by Christians, let's not forget that. The Big Bang cosmology, invented by a Roman Catholic priest, the math was. Um, so when we look at this stuff and we say the only thing that's true are scientific facts, that's usually how a lot of people will put it. I'll tell them, okay, is that statement true? Verify using the scientific method. What do you mean? Well, I only accept statements that are based on scientific fact as true. Okay, prove that. Only science, only the natural sciences can demonstrate truth. Demonstrate that. You can't. You can't put that statement under a microscope, nor can you put human rights. Where do human rights come from? Right? Where does the concept of justice come from? Can you put that? Where does the concept of love? Oh, well, that's a biochemical reaction that causes someone to literally die and end their ability to procreate for the sake of love of country, love of family, love of neighbor, love of a woman, love of a man. Like, come on. Like, we know that there are things that exist within our lives that are the most important things that are not demonstrable by the scientific method. Right? And so when we reduce them to that, we're actually getting rid of the most important parts about life. Like just take human rights. How do we describe justice? Right? The justice that is owed if you can never put justice itself under a microscope. And yet, mm. and yet, we all fight for justice. We literally kill people over something that if I were to take your away your freedom of speech, right? As someone who says, you know, I, I only believe in science then you have no right to the freedom of speech. Let me take that away from you, right? So the, uh, the big thing is scientism brackets off the fullness. So this one, um, this one uh, psychologist says, an artist looks at a bunch of real stories. True, your story, Jay's story, my story, looks at a bunch of stories and sees where we are at our best and when we are at our worst and notices commonalities between them. Then he writes a beautiful, intense, truthful story that's pure fiction yeah. but tells more truth than anything else. So you look at Macbeth. Are we really going to say that Macbeth has no truth in it? No, we say Macbeth is almost more true than reality because the artist has brought together individual realities and got us to see the even deeper meaning behind it all. That's what true art – that's when art really comes together. You're like, Wow. I watched this superhero movie and learned more about myself, right. you know, than there, my journaling. I, I know a priest who who says a lot. Uh, if that's not true, it should be. And it, he doesn't mean like he wants <laughs> to create reality. He's saying that story is so like in touch with in touch with reality. Yeah. That that it you know it should have happened. I don't know if it happened or not, but I, I think we see this a lot in like in some saint stories. Um, yeah. Or or even like maybe even our relics, um, things <laughs> like that. It's like. Well, this tradition, this, 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 they all demonstrate truth. 
All these saint stories that we hear, St. George slaying a dragon, demonstrates truth. If it's not true, it should be. Did St. George slay a dragon with his sword? I don't know. Yeah. Probably not. But but if it's not true, it should be. So um, I'm going to leave with one last thing about the Transcendentals that I think is cool. Go. A Greek urn. Right, you you've seen like a a pitcher or a bowl from ancient Greece. Uh, I've seen Hercules, the animated movie. So yes, Hercules. yes. So yes, which spins around and the movie becomes a thing. Why did they decorate those bowls? Why do we find art written on cave walls from Neanderthals? Because the human heart needs beauty. It needs beauty. It's not a nice thing to have. It needs beauty. That's why we take a bowl, a vase, an urn, and we wrap it with the story of Hercules, and we wrap it with the story of whatever, right? Like, the people put all this stuff, and Yeats even has a poem that I have right here, or excuse me, not Yeats, John Keats, called Ode on a Gratian Urn, and he has this beautiful thing where he's talking about, like, I mean, just think, it's pure utility, a cup, a bowl, a vase, whatever, but we humans have to make it beautiful, Right? Now, I, my fear is we're becoming so detached from beauty because of utilitarianism that, you know, in the 70s, especially in the church in America, we embraced the brutalist utilitarian architecture of the Soviets for our parish churches, right? You have these big, thick, concrete blocks. You have all this stuff, and there was nothing beautiful about it. When you walked in, you can walk into so many churches and not feel like, you're getting a taste of heaven, which is what those churches were meant to be. I went to San Diego, and I walked in one of their main mission churches that's, you know, 350 years old. And I'm praying in there with, you know, mostly people who walk home from work. Um, uh, 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 there was a homeless guy near me. We're all sitting in pews, and we're all looking forward towards the altar. That the architecture has meaning. It draws you in to the singular moment of the altar, the tabernacle, the crucifix. It's all there to draw you in. And the, the amazing thing about it is when you destroy the symbols and the meaning behind it, it only lasts as long as it's a fad. So those brutalist churches are the oldest looking, most dated churches. Like you walk in and you're like, oh gosh, really? This is where you go to mass? You know, when you're visiting a relative or something, you're like... Oh, my God. But then you go into a beautiful church. Timeless. It's timeless. Mm-hmm. It's, that's what terrifies me about uh, Notre Dame because they're like, let's do a modern thing. <laughs> You're like, I will choke all of you. Mm. I will choke all of you that try to make a modern. Let's make a glass ceiling. <laughs> like That's one of the proposals. No, 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 no. Wow. Okay. Very good. So goodness, truth, and beauty, three transcendentals. Uh, We can learn a lot about ourselves, a lot about God, a lot about reality by studying these things. Mike, good talking to you. I I look forward to more of this stuff. In fact, this is a little bit of a deviation from... The Beyond the Bulletin podcast, which focuses on you know parish happenings, parish interviews, that kind of thing. Parish life, parish people, parish events. Yeah, um, that's one podcast. We're thinking about maybe uh, doing this type of thing more often um, with with Mike Gormley. Yeah, for those of you who want the Beyond the Bulletin type stuff, and you were very bored by this, that's one of the reasons why we want to make a different podcast so that this uh, Beyond the Bulletin could keep going with the parish life. But a new podcast where we dive into evangelization, theology, and catechesis, we can do it at a little bit deeper level. So if that's what your heart is longing for, or it's it's more accessible for adults on a drive, maybe, maybe you don't have time to sit down and nerd out over all the books that I love sitting down and nerding out over. 
but there's a lot that's out there. So our Theology of the Body series that we did, um, a lot of the talks that I've given on um, lately on the Eucharist and the Sacrament of Matrimony and liturgy, but also things on Christian morality and biblical studies, the atonement, theologies and stuff like that. It's a place for me to nerd out for our audience really is what it is. Yeah, I think people would be interested. Mm. We're going to use phrases like embodied cognition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm falling asleep. Actually. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's good stuff. So look forward to that, uh, etc. With Michael Gormley, we're gonna um, be making that happen um, in the near future, folks. We kept you a long time. Thanks for uh, tuning in to Beyond the Bulletin. We'll be back uh, with another episode next week. Bye. Bye. Miss you. <laughs> <laughs>